One can't tell one sin, right? That's the rule of Inferno. That's the rule of comedy so far. Not so much. In this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Hey, I'm Mark Scarborough. I should have said that up front. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to finish off Canto 7 of Inferno. And we're going to do something that no other Canto has yet done. We're going to drop a level to a new ring of hell in the middle of a Canto. We have been amongst the avaricious and the prodigal. They have been rolling their boulders. We were treated to a long sermon by Virgil on the goddess fortune and a long series of interpretive stances by me on it all. Now we're going to move on. Now let's descend to even greater sorrow. Those stars that were rising when I started out are falling now. We must not stick around too long. We cross the circle to its outer rim, to a place where a boiling spring overflows and collects in a ditch to flow away. The water was dark, more so than ink, and we going along beside its murky wave went down by a fractured path into this swamp which is called Styx. This miserable creek made its way to the bottom of the evil gray slope. And I, with a fixed stare, saw a muddy people in that mess, all of them naked and with looks of rage. They were socking each other, not just with their hands, but with their heads, their chests, even their feet. They even tore each other limb from limb with their teeth. My good master said, Son, now you see the souls of those overtaken with wrath. And what's more, I want you to believe for certain that under the water is a people who sigh and make all those bubbles at its surface, as you can see wherever you turn your eyes. Stuck in the muck, they say, we were so sad even when the sun made the sweet air glad that we carried around our own acrid fog. Now we croak like frogs in this black morass. They gargle their refrain deep in their throats, for they can't speak complete words. In this way, we made a big arc around the gross pond, between the dry bank and the wet parts, our eyes on those who suck down the mud. At last, we came to the foot of a tower. And that's how the seventh canto ends. Ends almost with a breathless up-in-the-air quality, right? At last, we came to the foot of a tower. So, we've descended a level. We've come to the fifth circle of hell. Virgil's told you who these are and told the pilgrim who these are. These are the ones overtaken with wrath. We want to talk more about that. This passage doesn't necessarily break into easy parts, so let's just look at it piece by piece. Virgil starts out and says, now let's descend to even greater sorrow. We've learned this already, that the rings going down in hell get more and more sorrowful, the punishment's more and more dire, so far. And we've come down to this ring, and then Virgil says a most curious thing. Those stars that were rising when I started out are falling now, and we must not stick around too long. So, 
I'll say first what this is. First, what he's telling us is it's sometime after midnight on Good Friday night. So we're into Saturday morning sometime just after midnight. They didn't necessarily see midnight as a place that changes the days necessarily in medieval uh, cosmology and temporal markers. We would say that, but it's sometime after midnight on Friday night. Here's why it's curious. How does Virgil know what the stars are doing if they're in a cave down inside the Earth? How does Virgil know that? Those stars that were rising when I started it out are falling. It's not like he's got a (laughs) chronometer on his wrist. It's not like he's got a watch. How does he know what the stars are doing? This is a curious point. It's going to get more curious over the course of Inferno in the next few cantos. How does Virgil know this stuff? How does he know what's going on in the outside world? How would he know what the stars are doing down in hell? It is a cave after all. He can't see those stars. He doesn't surely keep time anymore the way we would keep time up top on 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 the earth. What is going on here with Virgil? And how does he know these things? We crossed the circle to its outer rim, to a place where a boiling spring overflows and collects in a ditch to flow away. These next three tercets, these nine lines that come up now, are full of naturalistic detail. We are really getting a close look at what's going on here. Crossing the circle to its outer rim, to a place where a boiling spring overflows and collects in a ditch to flow away. And notice how close to it we get. The water was dark, more so than ink. It's a purpley color, and we... Going along beside this murky wave went down by a fractured path. We're actually seeing the descent and the kind of scramble that it would take to get down a level into this swamp, which is called Styx. Ah, we finally come to Styx. This miserable creek made its way to the bottom of the evil gray slope. All right, these nine lines are full of all kinds of, as I said, naturalistic detail, very close specifics. It is often, they are often read in all kinds of allegorical ways, as you can imagine, about the soul, about the soul in wrath, about how the soul exists in wrath, about the murky ink that is wrath around the soul. That's all great. I tend to read this more just as we're getting more and more of a sense of hell and more and more kind of, we would say, specifics or details of hell. Yet there's a problem. There's a spring. And it's flowing downhill into this morass, as we'll discover, called Styx, this swamp, which is here kind of just this this vile, mucky place. What about Acheron? Remember Karen and the Acheronte? And he's got his boat and he's ferrying everybody across. Here's a question for you. Where does that water go? I mean, if, after all, these are rings of hell, they've got to be pretty flat. I mean, the going down part is between the rings. It's not the ring itself. So that river's got to be sitting, Acaronte, on a rather flat surface. So it can't be flowing, can it? And yet it seems to be flowing. And what? how is all this working? All right. This is a point in Dante's favor. This little bit right here is calling back to Acarante, which is calling forward to the whole question of the hydraulics of hell. And believe it or not, we're going to find out what are the exact 
hydraulics of hell and how does it work and how does the water flow and where does it all go and where is it coming from? This is kind of amazing to me. Instead of just leaving Acaronte as this, I don't know what, this eternally revolving river or something that Karen ferries people across, Dante's actually going to try to work all of this out into a kind of hydrology of the inferno. And we're starting it here with little springs that are overflowing and flowing down a hill. And now remember, let me just say before we pass on, that Dante doesn't know anything about gravity. (laughs) No concept of gravity. This is way pre-notions of Newtonian universe, much less Einsteinian universe, and they don't know anything about gravity. What they believe is the, the the kind of geology of the planet is based on like attracts like. So water flows downhill because it's trying to get to the ocean. The, the like is attracting like, and in all of that, you're flowing downhill because water is searching out a place of more water. Things try to get to their place where they would be part of a larger thing that is themselves. That's a complicated way to say it, but like attracts like is better. Uh, This is going to come up later with how we exist on the surface of the earth, but that's a whole different matter and we'll save that for when it comes up. But let's just say right now it's not flowing downhill because necessarily it's, uh, you would say, well, it's gravity. Of course it flows downhill. No, it's flowing downhill because there's more water. And it's got to come to a place where there's more and more water. And that is, in fact, how the hydraulics of hell are going to operate. But that's in future cantos. All right, we come down to the fifth circle. Let me remind you the circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, avarice and prodigality, and now we come to the circle of wrath. And before we get there, let me just back up. Let me talk to you for a second about St. Thomas Aquinas's commentary on Aristotle's ethics. Aquinas finds mm, three different kinds of wrath. It's not just anger, it's wrath. And we'll talk about why later in actually the next canto, why it's not just anger, but it's wrath. It's a more dire emotional state. Anyway, Aquinas pulls out three different kinds of wrath from Aristotle's ethics. One is a choleric kind of wrath. Uh, that is, it's quick to come on you and it's quick to leave you. It's, it's just a kind of outburst wrath, you know, bang, it's there and bang, it's gone. A second kind of wrath is amari, or bitter wrath. And a bitter wrath is a long-held, simmering, low-bubble kind of wrath. And then the final third kind of wrath is difficult wrath, as it would be said in Aquinas' commentary, difficult wrath. A difficult wrath is wrath that produces violence. Ultimately, it's it's the wrath that ends up where uh, you strike someone else, you murder someone else, you hit someone else, etc. And it seems like in this canto, the choleric and the bitter wrath are what are being punished, not the difficult wrath, not the wrath that leads to violence, but rather kind of outburst wrath and then bitter wrath. Let's look at it exactly. And I, with a fixed stare, saw a muddy people in that mess, all of them naked with looks of rage. Sembiante ofeso. Sembiante ofeso with um, looks, faces, of offense, people who are who easily offended, people who are quick 
to strike out at you. And these people are here socking each other, as it says, fighting each other, hitting each other, not just with their hands, but with their heads, their chest, their feet. They even tore each other limb from limb with their teeth. Just think about how this has worked out. In lust and in gluttony, the sinners are brutalized by external forces. In the second and third ring of hell, lust and gluttony, what's happening to the sinners is outside of themselves. So the winds are blowing and the lustful are being bashed about on the wind. Or in the gluttons, Cerberus is raking his claws across them, tearing them apart as they lie in the muck, and they're being hit with these big hailstones that clearly hurt. But when we come down to circles four and five, to the avaricious and prodigal in, in circle four, and now here the wrathful in circle five, the sinners are brutalizing each other. In the avaricious and prodigal, you remember they're rolling their boulders so they smack against each other, but they're not necessarily tearing their own mm, bodies. Do souls have bodies? They're not actually tearing their own bodies apart. Here with the wrathful, they are truly inflicting pain on each other, socking each other, not just their hands, but with their heads, their chest, even their feet. They even tore each other limb from limb with their teeth, and I, I'm not touching it. How does that work? Because that suddenly sounds like there are bodies there tore each other limb from limb with their teeth. Tough bit to try to figure out how the soul exactly could be torn apart. It's going to come back and haunt us later in Inferno even more, but let's just say there it sits. And, and, and Virgil sees Dante looking at these people, staring at them, and he says... You, now you see the souls who of those overtaken with wrath, culor cui vince lira, those who were vanquished with wrath, those who wrath, wrath vanquished, how's that? Those who wrath vanquished. That is, they, those who are caught in this phase in which wrath becomes their identity. They've just been overwhelmed by this sin of wrath itself and what's more and here Virgil goes on and says something that Dante the pilgrim couldn't know I want you to believe for certain and Virgil says isn't it funny how he's he's really pushing that hard I want you to believe for certain that under the water is a people who sigh and make all those bubbles at its surface <laughs> As you can see, so apparently we can see people standing there in the muck hitting each other, and then we can see the water bubbling from below, and Virgil is explaining why it's bubbling. As you can see, wherever you turn your eyes, stuck in the muck, they say those people down submerged into the water. We were so sad, even when the sun made the sweet air glad. So even when they were back up on the top of the earth and the sun was out, it's a spring day, it's gorgeous. Even when the sun made the sweet air glad, we carried around our own acrid fog. <laughs> Interesting, crazy phraseology. Acidiosofuma. The only way I can say this is to put it in modern terms the fumes of depression, the, the fumes of sullenness, uh, we might say. This word, acidioso, 
This word uh, depression, sullenness, it's coming out of acedia or exedi from the Latin, uh, meaning a kind of despair, a kind of languid, non-movement kind of despair. And that term ultimately gets connected up with the sin of sloth. Uh, with the uh, with the mortal sin of sloth, it comes from a Greek word, Acadia. <laughs> Acadians, like you know, Acadia in Greek, in in classical Greek, which means no, ah, uh, and Acadia care or um, uh, beneficence. So no care, no beneficence. We might say negligence is a good way to put it. Uh, it comes from this, you know, that I'm so uh, I'm so sunk down in myself, I can barely move, and so I neglect everything I need to be doing. These seem to carry around their own. I said acrid fog. Now we croak like frogs in this black morass. And Virgil goes on to explain it. They gargle their refrain deep in their throats. And you should think right here, the canto is linking back to itself. This is another reference to poetry or music. And remember the the uh, the uh, avaricious? They had their shameful meter, the words that they screamed at each other in their shameful meter. Here we have a deep refrain in their throats, all this musical linking. This canto is unbelievably structured. I'm telling you, from circularity <laughs> to this bit, linking refrains and musical metaphors back and forth to each other. Anyway, Virgil says, they gargle their deep refrain in their throats for they can't speak complete words, and this may be why it is most problematic. A, why, how did Virgil know about those stars going on up there? B, what is going on here that Virgil is voicing the damned? This is the first time this has happened. We're told that these people can't speak complete words, so they gargle something in there, their refrain in their throats, but Virgil voices them. This is problematic on several levels. Is Virgil, if Virgil is an exemplum, what's he doing voicing the damned? If, especially in a medieval context, what's he doing voicing the damned? How does Virgil know what they're saying? How can Virgil hear them? How is he aware of what's going on down there? And how can he give their incomplete words, their, their broken speech, how can he turn it into full speech that is in fact, so grandiose, beautiful, and so problematic. Achidiosofuma, the fumes of depression. How is Virgil able to do all of this? In this way, we made a big arc around the gross pond. And I just want you to hold that in your head. A big arc around the gross pond. So they're walking the circle. And they're walking around sticks, the gross pond, and they're coming around it between the dry bank and the wet parts, our eyes on those who suck down the mud. And at last we came to the foot of a tower and then it breaks. Kind of crazy the way that we get this compression of the sin. Think how little is actually said here. Now there is one point and I guess we should get to it. The wrathful seem to be divided into two bits. Those who are overtaken with wrath, those who wrath vanquished, and those who are giving off their depressive fumes or the fumes of depression. So they seem to be in two categories. And there seems to be, you know, this seems to connect back to Aquinas's notion of two of the three kinds of ire, of wrath, the choleric and the bitter. But 
Also, you should know that this is a infernal inversion of Leah and Rachel. Let me explain that just a moment. Leah and Rachel are the two wives of Jacob, the two primary wives, the first two wives of Jacob. And over time in the Middle Ages, Leah becomes, we've already encountered Rachel once with Beatrice, and Leah becomes a metaphor, an allegory of the active life, mostly because in the biblical story, Leah ends up having eight children. (laughs) Having eight children, she definitely led an active life. So she becomes this kind of allegory of the active life, and Rachel becomes an allegory of the contemplative life. And when Beatrice is sitting with Rachel in the second canto of Inferno. She's sitting with a figure out of the contemplative life, the slow, peaceful, uh, meditating life. So this is a kind of weird, infernal inversion of them. That is, these souls who are bashing each other about are kind of a hellish version of Leah and the active life to do good. And the souls that are sunk down in the in the muck and are croaking out their acrid fog are, well, then an infernal version of Rachel and the contemplative life. But more importantly, notice that they're divided. We have active people hitting each other, and passive people sunk down in the muck. And notice again, we're being driven back to an Aristotelian mean. We're being driven back to a place where we should say, okay, these are the two poles, just like we had avarice and prodigality. These are the two poles, and there's probably a golden mean or measure between them, although it is not brought forward in this canto. We don't see that golden mean, so we're being offered the poles of the Aristotelian ethic, and we're not being given what it would be to stand in the center. What it would be in the avaricious and the prodigal, as I argued, it would be to accept the goddess fortune and the spin of the wheel of fate and not worry about either hoarding or spending goods. Here, we get the poles, but we don't get the middle ground, and we just seem to just blow right through the wrathful. Surely for a poet who lives in war-torn times in the Middle Ages on the Italian peninsula, surely wrath is more important than this cursory look at them. And in fact, it's true. Because what happens next at the opening of Canto Eight is nothing short of revolutionary. What's going to happen in the next episode of this podcast and in the next passage will bring into clarity and focus all these concerns. Why are we racing through the wrathful? Why are we passing so quickly? Why did we get all that bit about the avaricious and and the prodigal? Why did it shatter into the Aristotelian poles? Why is it doing it again here? Oh, so much is going to start changing. And part of it, you can see right here, it's starting to come into clarity. That is that these sinners are not brutalized by external forces necessarily, but they are beginning to brutalize each other. And so their humanity is slowly being taken away from them. It all goes back. It, it's all been sitting here all along. It goes back to what Virgil said on the shore of Acarante. 
when Dante sees all of the sinners getting into Karen's boat and doesn't quite understand why they're all getting in. And Virgil explains it, that the, their fear has morphed into their desires. It's been sitting here, this notion that suddenly you become the sum of your own fears and that you become the expression of your own to use a very modern phrase, perverted desire or convoluted desire or wishes that are not directed adequately or properly toward a fulfillment that would bring you satisfaction, but that are instead torqued or twisted in some way. It's all sitting here. It's been sitting around us all along with Chaco and Francesca, but it's got to come into better focus. And so here we get this Hmm, little stroll around the wrathful. We see them. Oh, there they are. And they're the ones down there. Virgil somehow voices. And then we we go around the big arc of the circle and come to a tower. And it just seems like the plot just suddenly stopped in mid-breath as if it needs to go on. It does need to go on. So come back. In the next episode of the podcast, we will start Canto 8 and we will start in a new direction. And the poem will step off. It's not going to forget what it's done. Everything is still in place. Virgil, Beatrice, the constructs of Virgil, the problem of Virgil himself, it's all going to still be in place, but it's going to return with a new focus and a new change in ways that make the poem suddenly step beyond merely a zoo, a museum of the damned in which you point to some of them and some of them get to talk and some of them don't and you get a few sermons and you're out from a zoo of the damned into something much more human and something much more poetic and something much more artistic. So subscribe, rate this podcast. If you enjoyed it, drop a comment. I'd really appreciate it. Connect me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough. Hashtag it, Walking with Dante, and we can carry on a conversation about this canto, about anything about Dante. I'd be thrilled to talk to you there. And otherwise, I will see you on the other side at the start of Canto 8 in the next episode of Walking with Dante.